Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. It is something none of us like to think about, the end of our lives or that of a loved one. As a result, although many of us may think about it, we often don't talk about it, so our wishes sometimes go uncommunicated. That's just one aspect of end-of-life issues WITF's Transforming Health examines as part of our new series, Finding Peace. It's the topic of this segment of today's Smart Talk. Joining us, and we have a full house today. Joining us, Ben Allen, WITF's Transforming Health reporter. Kira McGuire, WITF's Health Smart Talk. Uh, smart, I, I have Health smart, smart Talk. We have some smart, <laughs> smart thing. And, and talks, How about you know? uh, Health Smart uh, producer, host? And uh, Kira is hosting a program tomorrow night at 8 on WITF called Fighting Peace. Dr. Jim Heffler, a Dickinson College professor who has researched and written extensively about end-of-life issues, and Dr. Vupal Bhatia, who is Medical Director of Post-Acute Services for Wellspan Health. Welcome, everyone, to the program today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we welcome your questions or comments. We know that uh, this is a difficult topic for many people, but this is an opportunity to ask questions about it. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, finding peace. We were just talking about how we like the name. Right. It's, it's right. One of the most difficult things we do around WITF is finding names for uh, some of the projects that we do. And this one was r rather difficult, just like it's hard to talk about the topic. It's hard to find a name for it. So, Ben, talk about finding peace. So finding peace is it's the it's the broad outline, basically. And, uh, of course, you'll have the, the piece from Kira tomorrow night on WITF. TV. I'll also have a story um, tomorrow on WITF-FM. But then we also have the website. And this is kind of the showcase, if you will. This is where I would start if I were uh, trying to get a sense of what exactly is going on. You go to findingpeace.transforminghealth.org. You can also find it on WITF.org or transforminghealth.org. And it lays it out. It's a it's a pathway. Uh, we, we lay out the choices. We lay out... Um, the, the 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 path you can you can actually take uh, what happens when things change and then what happens at the end and this is all thanks to I should say Professor Jim Halfler who really sp spotlighted this and spearheaded uh, this effort by doing many of these interviews with experts across the nation experts that are really uh, known as leaders in this field and we've got those uh, many of those videos on our website and he's got uh, many of uh, many more on his website but we've taken kind of the 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 big ones if you will and putting them on findingpeace.transforminghealth.org and it's nice and easy presentation to understand and to figure out uh, what exactly is uh, is there and how you can kind of work your way through it. Because, Scott, like you said, and we'll probably hear this a lot today, you know, there is so much to figure out and so much to so much to think about um, that it can be overwhelming. It can be a lot, a lot to, a lot to digest. You know, we we talk often about <laughs> multimedia, and not only WITF, but so many media organizations do. But this truly is multimedia, and not only the conversation we're having here today, but the website looks great. It is laid out in such a way that it is very easy to follow, and it kind of goes in steps, and. Actually, uh, that is one of the keys, not just, and I'm turning to Jim Heffler from, uh, you know, the steps that we have on the website to, to kind of follow the choices, uh, end of life, bereavement, that kind of thing. 
But that is one of the things that we learn uh, throughout this conversation, Finding Peace, is that steps have to be taken. What is the first step? Uh, well, just to say a few words about choices, uh, Scott, it, it is different today than it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. There are so many choices today. You know, 70 years ago, there was not much people could do, uh, doctors could do for us at the end of life. And there are so many things that they can do now to extend life that sometimes doesn't also increase or improve or even maintain the quality of life. And so the whole idea of choices and and uh, a term that I coined a few years ago, managing death, is something that's relatively new. And then on top of that, it's something that we all don't like to talk about. We don't share our stories with each other. And so when it faces us for the first time, sometimes people don't even know that they have choices. And so the idea of, uh, of choices here is to focus on what the patient, if you're the patient, what do you really want? Not so much in terms of what kind of procedures you want, but how do you want the end to go? What are your key uh, the factors that you really worry about, you're concerned about? You, you Maybe rather than thinking about, I want this procedure or I don't want that procedure, where do you want to pass? Do you want to be at home? Do you want to be surrounded by people in your family? Do you want to be comfortable? Uh, do you want to reunite with those parts of your family that you haven't uh, had communication with or maybe uh, are estranged from? Do you want, you know, those kinds of personal human uh, aspects of the dying process are really important because time is limited and uh, we all will die even if you go for aggressive measures and uh, the, at some point uh, you're going to pass. And the question is, what do you want to accomplish uh, in the time that you have left? And that's the first place you start is thinking about what you want as a person, not, not what you want as a patient. Dr. Bodiga, let's let's talk about this from a clinical point of view. I mean, just as uh, Jim Heffler said, it is much different today because we have made so many advances in medical science that you can keep people alive. You can keep them alive for a long time. It doesn't mean they want to be kept alive. It doesn't mean that they want to have the quality of life that they're having. So from a clinical point of view, what are those choices? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with Jim uh, when he said that things are much different now than they were 70 years ago. Uh, the choices that are available now uh, are much more, and the patients often find themselves lost and uh, unable to make decisions because of so many choices. Uh, I would say to, uh, to for the patients to be able to do this better and and identify what they would want uh, as a person and not as a patient, it starts with having a conversation. And that conversation starts with the caregiver, uh, which, which is a care team member, uh, the physician, and the, the team members at the office, and more importantly, with the family member. Uh, so uh, if they're able to have that conversation with the family member, it helps them understand that what matters to them as a person, as a uh, and then more importantly, it is communicated to the family and the loved ones. So in time, in future, when the, the person is not able to make his or own uh, decision or his or own voice known to the, the, the healthcare team member, the family can speak uh, for that person. 
the choices are much more now. Uh, the ad- advancement in the healthcare field and the technology, uh, they can pretty much keep uh, keep patient alive uh, without any meaningful uh, meaningful life. So uh, that is very important that they think through that. Mm. Scott, I want to actually just jump back to what Professor Heffler was talking about with thinking of almost the principles of of this, because you can't possibly think through every situation. There are going to be things that come up, and we try and cover this in Finding Peace. There are going to be things that come up, changes that happen that you yourself may have never considered. And so for a family, if you're not available to make that decision, available to to think those things through when they're actually happening, I think what's what's important is that your family members know your broad principles, mm-hmm. um, because if they don't know your broad principles, then they won't be able to make a decision, or they'll feel paralyzed, frankly, um, about making a decision um, because that has never been talked about. So if they know, you know, he he'd rather die earlier than live in pain, or 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 whatever, um, then perhaps they can use those broad principles to guide a decision, which is so much more important that knowingness really helps um, helps along uh, during the, the end-of-life process. Do you write it down? Because, I mean, so many times I've heard of families who have said, well, I remember mom saying once that she didn't want to be kept alive. Well, that's kind of an anecdotal thing rather than... Uh, well, is that what mom really wanted? Right. Well, you know, Ben's right about this idea and the importance of having a discussion early and often. It's not even a one-time deal. Uh, but, the, you know, you asked a question about writing down. We have these instruments, uh, these legal instruments, living wills, durable powers of attorney for health care. They're all helpful at some level, but really they're just excuses to have the discussion. If you don't have the discussion, it really, and this is going to sound odd, it really doesn't matter what you put in your living will or your durable power of attorney for health care. If your family disagrees with either of those documents, when the time comes, the doctors will listen to the family. And so it's really important that you have the discussion. If you have the discussion and you don't have those instruments, you're much safer than if you have the instruments, the legal instruments, and don't have the discussion. Uh, I I tell people maybe the most important thing you can do is write a letter. Uh, uh, Write a letter uh, laying out some of your key principles. Share that. Don't keep it hidden. Share that with the family over Thanksgiving dinner or sometime when everybody's around and say, this is what I really want. I really want you to honor these, these principles, as Ben said. Uh, and and get the family on board early on. The problem, and one of the reasons why I did the website, is the problem is all this is great advice, uh, but many people don't take it. And so uh, most of us, the vast majority of us, won't do this. And then there'll be, uh, and, and a third of us, by the way, will end our lives, the ends of our lives will be incompetent to make decisions. Mm-hmm. We'll have advanced senile dementia or something. I want to talk about uh, what you just brought up about why we don't have the conversations, but uh, Kira McGuire um, 
you know, I always ask this question of you when we talk about a HealthSmart program, mm -hmm. um, but what did you learn from it? What are some of the questions that you had answered during the course of your conversations with people on the, on the, uh, on the program? Well, Scott, this, this program, um, this HealthSmart in particular, is very special to me because I, I got to spend a lot of time with um, the people who were interviewed as part of this show, um, spent a lot of time with them, and their interviews are very personal, understandably very emotional, um, so emotional and so personal, in fact, that one might wonder why why someone would want to share their story with such a wide audience. But they did this, what I learned is they did this um, because they feel, as we've been talking about, that we don't have these conversations often enough about end of life and um, that we need to become more comfortable with them as individuals and as family members and as a culture. And so their hope in sharing their stories is that they will inspire someone to begin one of these conversations at home or at least to just become a little bit more comfortable with the topic in general. So um, it took a lot of bravery, but I learned that, you know, they had a, a meaning and a purpose in, in wanting to share. And I hope it does. And I feel it will help someone to start a conversation at home. And sometimes it is just that random spark. I remember last mm -hmm. year, Scott, our summer read for Transforming mm -hmm. Health was Being Mortal. And I remember being on the phone with my parents and we had never talked about this. I'll be the first to admit we had never talked about this. My parents are both um, right around 60 years old and never come I mean why why would you you would think why would you you ever bring that up that's not a fun conversation to have um and I just mentioned uh, I'm reading this book for work and it's really interesting and I never thought about this and you know my mom immediately interjected and was like ah, I don't you know let me go let it you know <laughs> let it happen and and then you can hear my father like chuckling in the background like how could you say that and she doesn't know what she's talking about but it it reflects that at least, you know, and obviously that's, you know, step one of a 15-step conversation, right. but it at least breaks the ice and then at least gets you thinking, okay, now, now they're thinking about it, now I'm thinking about it, now in the future when we have this conversation and actually talk about the principles, we can make a difference. And it, it all was just because we read a, a random book and, and, and decided to, to talk about it. And we're going to talk about Go ahead, go yeah. ahead, Dr. Barney. Yeah, I'll just like to second what Ben said. And I had a very similar experience uh, uh, actually during the same time when we were doing this smart, um, uh, the, the summer read program. And uh, I, I think the more important was uh, for me to realize that it's not just me talking to my parents, but also my parents talking to me. Because the the planning can start anytime. I mean, each of each of us who are on this program today can can potentially um, meet with an unexpected event or an accident, and at that time, this planning would matter. So, uh, what that made me realize that I have to do my own planning, and I and have to have that conversation with my loved one, my wife, and I did that, and mm -hmm. I did just that around that time. So, the age is not the the key point here if you the earlier you start the better it is going forward and it needs to be refreshed from time to time as your health advances from being healthy to developing some chronic conditions and maybe getting more sicker as you as you advance in age we're going to talk about some more specifics in just a moment you're listening to smart talk on WITF your home for M NPR news and all things regional I'm Scott Lamar 
We're discussing end-of-life issues, part of uh, WITF's Transforming Health. It's a new project called Finding Peace. To learn more about uh, end-of-life issues, Finding Peace, plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care, check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system. Online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. All right, joining me on the phone right now, and I believe you're in northeastern Pennsylvania, the Stocks, Melissa and Roland Stock. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Right, well, Kira McGuire, who uh, we've mentioned that uh, the Finding Peace TV show is going to be on WITF-TV uh, tomorrow night at 8, uh, talked with Roland and Melissa Stock uh, for the program and uh, let's um, Roland let me just kind of uh, start with you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about your background about your story well I'm uh, I just turned 68 and I had the good fortune to uh, retire early in what I would call early so I've been fully retired for just over six years now and uh, it's it's been it's been good uh, in that I had already been thinking about the transition from uh, working to what the last I thought third of the life looked at looked like. So uh, and I I'm interested in a lot of things. I I like woodworking and working on guitars. I built a guitar and I, my career was in kitchen design. I, was with Ed Lank Kitchens in Lemoyne for 30 years. So anyway, these uh, uh, I journal. I have uh, done gone through this men's work about more of a world model than American model of a man growing growing old and how one views their retirement years. And so, uh, needless needless to say, uh, when just out of almost clear blue i got this cancer diagnosis it was it was shocking but on another level i guess i was somewhat prepared on how to handle it because i'd already been thinking about these issues i just thought i had i just frankly thought i had another 25 30 years of playing tennis and playing guitar before I had to face all these really tough decisions. You uh, you were diagnosed with lung cancer. How long ago was that? That was August 29th, uh, a year ago. This, this was um, uh, 13 months out, uh, August 29th. I guess that was 2015. So your prognosis at that time, when you were diagnosed and the doctors were looking how at how they could uh, treat your illness, right? What was your prognosis? Well, the prize stage four, which which is what often happens with this because it's it doesn't show up quickly, and I have a I have a lung tumor, but I also had some small brain tumors, three, and really, in one of them hemorrhaged which turns out to be a good thing because that hemorrhaging gave me seizures, which sent me to the emergency room at Harrisburg Hospital where the scan showed that I had these tumors. And this this type of cancer is uh, you last three months without treatment. So uh, it's a good thing it was discovered when it, when it was. 
the prognosis is it's considered a treatable but incurable, at least up until this point, cancer. And we even asked for a timeline and immediately uh, uh, found out, you know, treatments and so forth. And speaking of choices, I, I like that earlier segment I heard, we've faced with so many choices now. The good news is that 70 years ago, I would have only lasted three months at maximum. Today, with this new targeted gene therapy, I'm fortunate I can take a targeted pill, cancer pill, every day. And uh, it it lasts for anywhere from typically, on average, just about a year. I've been on it for thir- just over a year. And there is another one in the wings that is also very effective and also as my oncologist tells me, will buy me more months. Mm. Beyond that, beyond that, uh, most of the choices are probably choices I won't choose to take. So I'm functioning, and I'm thankful for that. But it's, uh, you know, I only have so many months, maybe two, two and a half years of functioning at the level I would like to function at. So now you and uh, Melissa have had to make some choices, have had to have have this conversation. I mean, did you, you said you heard earlier what we were talking about. Had you had that conversation before your diagnosis? I think not quite as specifically, but yes, I think by and large we, uh, we had. Mm-hmm. So once you were diagnosed... Uh, I mean, I know once the diagnosis happens, it's a shock. Uh, you yes. probably go through a period of, you know, d- depression and what's going to happen, uncertainty. But when do you reach a point where it's like, okay, now we have to make some decisions here? Actually, I think that kicked in right away for me. I'm I'm sort of a type A list, ma- list maker, let's get it done, so... Especially, and I was on steroids, uh, which put me in a in a high gear. <laughs> I was actually making too many decisions. I think for everybody else there for a while. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, Mel- uh, Mel- let me bring Melissa into the conversation. Okay. Uh, Melissa, you're uh, uh, obviously very, very involved in this and the decision making and talking with your husband. It had to be a shock to you. Uh, kind of talk about that that period and the kind of conversations that the two of you were having. Well, um, it was very shocking, very hard-hitting, and I think conversations were very hard at first because the medication that Roland was on, the steroids, in combination with the diagnosis and the way he was feeling was sending him off in one direction. And for me, I couldn't really think about anything about except that I was devastated. Mm. And But when I was able to shift um, into a space where I was accepting a sacred calling, accepting a job, the question seemed to come out from the universe somewhere, will you accept this job as caregiver? Will you 
companion, Roland? Will you help draw meaning out of life, the kind of life that you thought you never thought you were going to have to live? Once I was able to shift into that mode, um, then we were able to be a little more in the moment with some having to make some choices and decisions. Mm-hmm. Kira McGuire, I mentioned that uh, you had talked with the stocks for uh, uh, for Health Smart that will air tomorrow night. Right, right. Hi, Roland. Hi, Melissa. How are you guys? Hi, Kira. It's nice to hear from you. I um I just wanted to say, um, Roland. I mean, talk a little bit about. I know we talked about why you wanted to do this program, but talk a little bit about um, why you feel that it's so important, you know, to share and and what your hopes were in doing that. I know okay. that was well, very important to you. It, it was. Well, I'm thinking about. Uh, I just find that. Uh, in our culture, uh, women tend to be such better communicators than uh, men, particularly about things that really matter, frankly. And, ex- and I notice that even accelerated as we age. It seems like my observation has been is if, if we go to retirement homes and whatever, oftentimes you'll see, I'll see women there who are getting along all, all pretty well. Most of the men don't seem to be doing real well. They tend to be isolated and sullen, and and, and it's, I just I just see that you know I don't want to be that way, and uh, and so I've decided before this diagnosis even that I choose not to be that way. So when we got this diagnosis, and including just trying to take care of all the physical, financial arrangements and all of that, I decided. Part of my, I also operate under this theory that, you know, we don't always choose our circumstances, but I'm one that tries to take what I'm given and make the best out of it. So I thought, well, I have this disease. I'm facing, uh, I'm, I'm facing a, a not good outcome in one sense, but a very common outcome of dying, which we all share. And as a man, I'm going to choose to talk about it. I'm going to go go across the grain. That was part of our decision right at first. I mean, within a couple of days, we were familiar with uh, caringbridge.org, which is a wonderful nonprofit website to post medical advice to a broad audience that you don't have to call everybody you know all over the country and give them the latest doctor's report. So we chose that as a vehicle to uh, talk about not only medical issues and progressions, regressions, but also how we were experiencing, how we were dealing with it. It's, it's partly, a, partly as a platform for us because we're processing this and partly as a way to communicate it. And the other thing we did, thanks to Melissa, is, you know, thinking about this isn't just the person in trouble, it's the whole system of family. She asked our oncologist very early on for help, and she she had us introduce this to the palliative care program, which is a pilot program in Pennsylvania this year. And so we signed up for that as you know, part of the hospice umbrella. And uh, you know, we, most time we think about hospice, it's very late, and 
okay, we're signing up, and it's, we're probably two years out maybe when we signed up from hospice, but we wanted help, and we have received help by mm-hmm. doing those two things. Hey, Roland, I'm going to talk about palliative care and hospice in just a moment. I want to thank you for being on the program today and for being on HealthSmart, too, and telling your story, uh, because I, I think that it probably will help a lot of other people in uh, starting the conversation. And I think both of you are to be admired for what you're doing, your courage, and uh, speaking out this way. And uh, the best wishes to you, okay? Thank you. Thank you very much, Scott. Mm-hmm. Roland and Melissa Stock, and uh, as I said, I think that uh, what they're doing, it's not a great situation, but uh, it is to be admired. Jim Heffler, uh, you know, something that Roland said that, that really strikes me is he said that his observation that me- women are much more open to having the conversation more so than men. Do you agree with that? Do you find that? Uh, I do. And, you know, I've been through a lot of training. Uh, there, there's a, a series of uh, discussions that we've had uh, both in Carlisle and here in Harrisburg called Closure. And Closure brings uh, stakeholders together, people who serve this population of uh, uh, folks at the end of life. And you look around the room, and it's overwhelmingly women. When I went around the country trying to find people to talk about doctors and nurses and caregivers, to talk about helping others make decisions, it's overwhelmingly women. Why? Women, Why won't men talk about it? Uh, I think it might run counter to our bravado, or uh, we're, we're fixers, maybe, uh, more often than carers. We'll deal with that when we get to it. I know. We'll, we'll deal there with you go. that when we get to it. And that's why, you know, Ben's dad is on the other side of the yeah. conversation yeah. going, Dad, don't be talking yeah. about that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but the important thing is, and one of the things that the stocks have, uh, is they have a, an amazing gift. And the gift is the opportunity to have these conversations. They see... Uh, what the trajectory is, and they've seized that gift and have been talking to each other. And I'm I'm sure that Melissa is very clear uh, about what uh, uh, Roland wants. Uh, If Roland can't make decisions, they've had that wonderful opportunity. And uh, one thing that that uh, Ben's mom may not know that that she gave Ben that day when they had that conversation is she gave him a gift, a wonderful gift. And the gift is peace. Uh, like I said, a third of us will pass with not being able to make decisions for themselves. And there are so many families that are torn apart uh, trying to decide what to do. Do we keep pushing? Do we make mom or dad feel comfortable? And and then you end up after the inevitable death and the family's torn apart and people wonder whether they gave up too early or whether they tried too long. And, and it can be emotionally wrenching. And so if you think of these conversations in terms of giving a gift, provide that gift because no one wants those in their family to go through those kinds of situations. And they're very common. Uh, it's a good reason not to, you know, just for the, uh, to have the frank conversation and give that gift of peace, find, help, help those who stay behind to have peace after decisions are made. Scott, one of the things that I heard from Roland was when he got that diagnosis, he said he wasn't, yes, he was sad. He, you know, uh, all those emotions came, but it sounded like, and what I heard reading in between the lines was that he was prepared. 
He was prepared for that diagnosis. He was prepared for news like that and was able to immediately start the discussion of how to handle it instead of being overwhelmed not only with the diagnosis of cancer, but then being overwhelmed with, well, what comes next? He said he had already had discussions about end of life with uh, with Melissa. And so now you can attribute it to his type A, as he, he mentioned, his type A personality. But, you know, when you're prepared, when you're prepared for something like that, and when you've had those kinds of discussions, then it all seems a lot more manageable. And so, like, like Professor Heffler said, you know, now that I know at least a little bit about what my mom wants, then I'll, I'll feel a lot more comfortable. And if and when something like that ever were to happen, I'll at least be able to say, okay, here's the principles we talked about. Now let's work off of what um, you know, what, how those principles apply to this situation instead of having to go back and take a step back and say, well, what are our principles? And, and uh, uh, imagine having that discussion about what your principles are while you're dealing with all the emotions that are swirling around a cancer diagnosis or any kind of other traumatic event. Dr. Badia? Yes, thank you. Uh, I would like to, first of all, thank you, Roland and Melissa, to, to be on the show and share their story. And uh, another thing that uh, struck me, what he said, was to be able to get guidance from his oncologist about the disease trajectory. The decisions that he, or the choices that he may have made for himself before he got this diagnosis were probably different from the choices that he is making now, now that he has a diagnosis. And the fact that he talked about that he, uh, he, he was able to enroll in this pilot program which is uh, getting the palliative care and the hospice treatment in addition to the curative uh, treatment that is being piloted in the state of Pennsylvania speaks uh, in itself that he has a good support system not only at the family level but also his care team level clinically that wherever he's getting care from. You know, Dr. So, Badia, that, that, that was one of the questions I did have for you uh, as we established very early on in the program that things have changed, but what is the doctor's role in this, the oncologist, uh, the other specialist? Uh, what conversations should people be having with their doctors? Um, I think it's a very important role, and at the same time, uh, we are lagging. Uh, our medical community as a whole is lagging in terms of having that sense of awkwardness and uh, uncomfortable feeling of bringing up these discussions with our patients. And yet uh, multiple data sources and the survey data has uh, shown that uh, people actually trust this information coming from their doctor or healthcare team members. So I would say that uh, as first and foremost thing that a, f a physician or the care team members can do is to encourage the team members to start thinking about what would uh, what would be the wishes, what would be the choices that the patient should make that would help them finding peace later on. That's one. And all these discussions and all these choices have to be refreshed as the health tra trajectory and the life advances from one phase to the next. So, and, and, and the care team members and the physicians can play a, a role in that, in guiding our patients and the families 
through that complex decision-making process. I just want to kind of quickly go over here, and I'm just going to list these things from uh, the, the Finding Peace uh, website that uh, everyone who is here today has contributed to and some of the things that you can learn about, but uh, your choices, care options, hospice, palliative care, uh, ranking your priorities, uh, making a decision about living in pain to live longer, decision-making, uh, caregiving differences, uh, break, breaking down your decisions into steps, changing course. Someone mentioned that, too. If Maybe you live longer than expected or uh, you're responding better to, to treatment. You can change what you have. Family conflict kind of touched on that, but the, that is something that happens very often with uh, when someone is in or a family is in this situation. And then there is bereavement. How does someone want to be remembered? Those are all topics that are covered as part of a part of a finding peace that uh, you know Kira McGuire will be talking about on her program, uh, Health Smart, tomorrow night at eight o'clock on WITF TV, and Ben Allen will be reporting on. So I just wanted to lay that out. That th- those are some of the things that uh, uh, are available to you, the listener out there, uh, that you could share with your uh, with your family, uh, share with friends. Uh, you know, we only have a minute or so left, and Jim Heffler, one of the big questions that many people may have after listening to this program is, all right, I want to have the conversation. How do I break the ice? How do I get started? Well, uh, the first thing, and I have to agree with Dr. Body in the, in the sense that sometimes doctors don't feel comfortable bringing this up. And one of the most important things families and patients can do is give that doctor permission Give that doctor permission to lay out the full range of options. We're oftentimes spring-loaded. Doctors are oftentimes spring-loaded. There's one more thing we can do. There's one more thing that might have some hope. There's one more procedure we could try rather than to say, what is it that you really want as days look like they may be more limited than we thought previously? Give that doctor permission. That's, I think, one of the first things you can do because doctors know what the options are, but they don't always feel comfortable laying them out for the patient. Insist that, okay, tell me about hospice. You can't ask too early about that. The answer to the question might be, well, you're not really there yet, but the answer to the question might be, oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't want to bring it up. I didn't feel comfortable. But since you brought it up, here are some things you can do. This is what hospice looks like. This is what it can provide and so forth. You may or may not be ready for that now, but at least give have patients give doctors the permission to lay out the full range of options. I think that's one of the most important things a patient or a patient's family can do in helping get that conversation started with the all-important caregivers that have information about the different trajectories that this uh, course of illness could take and what, what things you could do. What about family, though? Uh, well, uh, it starts with uh, Ben Allen, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Read a book, find an excuse. It's uncomfortable. Find an excuse uh, uh, to have a conversation. You know, there's a lot of games out there. There's one game called Go Wish. Uh, you can go online, gowish.com, and get a set of cards. And Christmas you, is coming up, a great Christmas gift. <laughs> there you go. See, we all laugh about that, and it is funny, but, you know, you sit down, you play this card game with uh, a loved 
one, and and it's like maybe 36 cards, and and in those cards it says what are your priorities. So this helps you set priorities. You pick your favorite, your top five priorities. Your loved one picks the five. You compare and you say no, no, that's not what I want. And it's uh, people laugh, they cry, they uh, enjoy uh, playing the game. But it also it's a discussion starter. And uh, once you get that out on the table and start talking about that elephant in the room, things go a lot easier after that. I can just see unwrapping that gift as a surprise. Say, what are you trying to tell me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank all our guests for being with us today. Uh, ben Allen, WITF's Transforming Health Reporter. Kira McGuire, WITF's HealthSmart uh, producer and host. The program airs tomorrow night, Finding Peace, tomorrow night at 8 on WITF-TV. Dr. Jim Heffler, a Dickinson College professor, he's researched and written extensively about end-of-life issues. Uh, Dr. Vipul uh, Badia, who is uh, medical director of post-acute services for WellSpan Health, and we talked to Melissa and Roland Stock. Thank you all for being with us today. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Ribbon cutting to open the Pennsylvania National Horse Show at the Farm Show Complex in Harrisburg is scheduled for just a few hours from now. It's one of the largest horse shows in the country. There will be eight national championships decided, half a million dollars in prize money awarded, and eight Olympians participating. Joining us on the program to talk about the horse show is Susie Webb, executive director of the Pennsylvania National Horse Show and their foundation. Ms. Webb, welcome to the program. Good morning. Kind of a hard turn to make from end-of-life issues to talking about something that a lot of people enjoy. But uh, a lot of people do enjoy the Pennsylvania National Horse Show. Uh, Talk about how significant this horse show is in the scheme of the sport. Well, a lot of people don't understand the really the purpose of this horse show is actually to raise money for our foundation. Mm-hmm. Then the money actually will go to therapeutic riding programs, equine programs, and children's programs across this area and across the nation. Mm-hmm. So it is more than just a competition. It is a, a community event, if you will. Exactly. Yeah, we do give a lot back to the community. You know, over $40 million is instilled in the Harrisburg area during this 10-day period. Uh, we also give back to the charities. We've given um, $1.68 million to the Kiwanis Youth Foundation over you know, the, um, the inception of the horse show. And we would give $30,000 annually to the local charities. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's talk about the horse show itself. If someone has never attended the Pennsylvania National Horse Show, what could they expect? Well, you're going to see 10 days of of national champions competing for those top honors. You're going to see um, a variety of theme days. You're going to see food vendors. You're going to see vendors for your shopping needs. The holidays are coming up. Um, so you're going to see a lot of exciting, a lot of different things. It's not just about the horses. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's not just about the horses. Obviously, there are people riding those horses. Right. Talk about the people who are involved in equine sports. Mm -hmm. I mentioned eight Olympians that are going to be there. Right. Well, you know, it it takes a village to put this horse show on. A lot of people don't realize, you know, how do the flowers get in the pots that actually get Mm -hmm. into the ring? We have a couple that come from New York that actually that's all they do, the horse show. All week long for 10 days is to do the decorations for the flowers and the courses in the ring. We hire 75 or 80 people that actually come. They have a specific job to do, and that's how this horse show all gets done. 
Lucy Nazo, who helps uh, promote the horse show, uh, mm-hmm. gave me a very, uh, very interesting and helpful list of did you know things. And just <laughs> as you're mentioning flowers, 500 mums used to decorate. Horses exactly. don't eat flowers, do they? No, they don't. Good. Well, they're not supposed to. They're we'll not supposed to. Okay. <laughs> but what Lucy also uh, mentioned to me that there are 1,800 pounds of Ingate uh, apples for horses and 3,600 pounds pounds of carrots at Ingate for horses. So there's a whole, there's a lot, you know, the the things that go on behind the scenes, those are just some some, uh, cute little reminders for those things. So how many horses will be participating? Actually, we have 1,400 horses that will participate over the 10 days. We have our first four days of the horse show, what we we term as or theme as Junior Weekend. Um, The juniors will come in, actually they'll compete Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is the United States of Equestrian Fest, uh, USCF, United States Equestrian Federation, um, the U.S. Medal Equitation Finals, which is a huge, huge undertaking. Uh, we'll have 200, almost 300 children that will compete for that national title. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting about this is the age disparity of those who are competing. Mm-hmm. I mean, most sporting events, you're talking about them maybe, you know, 20 to uh, 39, 40, not this. No. We'll have, you know, children that are on small ponies that can be as young as five years old. And we have Olympians. Um, we have one Olympian that's going to be, um, I do believe he's 68. Um, so we have a wide variety. And also men and women do compete in this sport as equals. Yeah. And that is, again, something very unique. Maybe the only sport where men and women do compete as equals, right? Right. Yes. And we also have you know, some interesting, we've, uh, interesting trivia. We have a father and a daughter that are actually competing in the Grand Prix on Saturday night as competitors, the father and a daughter team. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, I saw that uh, there are participants from a number of countries. How many countries? Uh, we have eight countries this year being represented. Okay. So the reason I asked that question, because I'm leaning to another one. Um, I'm originally from Chester County. Mm-hmm. Unionville in southern Chester County is is horse country. Right. A lot of uh, former Olympians, a lot of former champions. Mm-hmm. Are there Pennsylvanians involved in the in the competition? Oh, yes. Yeah, we have a, a good selection across the board, you know, from the pony hunters all the way up to the Grand Prix riders that will be participating this week. Mm. Um you know, something else, and when you think of the, the farm show, now we're talking about a pretty a big complex here when mm-hmm. uh, you think of uh, the farm show itself and all kinds of animals that are involved involved in the farm show. Mm-hmm. But horses are a little bit different in that they are shooed, right. and uh, there's a lot of concrete at the farm show, but mm-hmm. I understand that a hoof never te- uh, touches concrete. Right, exactly. Um, just to make sure that they're safe and they're sound on sound footing. Um, we do have special footing that actually goes into the arena during um, the course of our, we take up the dirt that was there for the Keystone show and we take up and we actually install it with our own sand and fiber. It's a combination of sand and fiber that goes into that arena to give them the cushion to make sure that it doesn't do anything to harm their legs or their hooves while they're competing. Um, and then also, actually we have shavings that go all around the arena. There's rubber mats so they do not they never touch concrete when they're at the farm show Mm. someone again i'm going to go back to the scenario of someone who has never been maybe even to a farm show period but Mm -hmm. to the pennsylvania national horse show uh, 
why would they enjoy it? What would they find that uh, is, is so enjoyable? You, I mean, you listed all the things that are going to be there, but if I'm sitting back in, in a seat there at the farm show and I'm watching this, what am I seeing and why am I going to like it? Well, you know, you have to understand how long and how hard these people have worked to actually get to the horse show. They've competed in competitions all across the country all year long to actually be invited to this. So it's it's almost like the Super Bowl in, in one respect where they actually have to be invited to come and participate and to win a ribbon is really coveted for those all those riders and you know it does again it takes a village it's not about the rider there's a farrier there's a veterinarian there is a trainer there is the groom there's the rider the rider's family so everybody really is involved in this whole um in this whole equitation or equestrian uh a competition. Okay, what is the actual competition? I mean, I know there are, there are more, there's more than one, but uh, what are some of the actual competitions? How would you describe it? Mm-hmm. Well, we basically there's two disciplines. There's a hunter discipline and a jumper discipline. Um, the hunters actually go around the ring and resemble what was in what we have known in the past as being in the hunt field. Very brilliant, very um, elegant uh, riding. The jumpers, on the other hand, they go fast, they go high. Um, um, they jump around the ring, and basically, they're just, they just can't knock down a rail. They knock down a rail, of course, and they have faults. Uh, but actually, that's fast. It's exciting. It's exciting to watch, and you never know what's going to happen in a jump off. Have these horses been bred for this? Yes, they have been. Mm-hmm. Yes. So talk about some of the, I mean, this isn't like, uh, you know, especially on this level, it's not like someone bought a horse as a pony and it grew up and became a, a champion. Maybe there are stories like mm-hmm. that. Right. But for the most part, uh, you know, these are horses that have been bred for this. The owners were looking for horses that had good breeding and that kind of thing. Right, exactly. And um, basically, well, there are two different things. There is a horse and there is a pony. So ponies don't grow into be horses. They stay ponies. Ponies. Ah, see, so. <laughs> see, I, I, I hear people when they say, "Well, I want to see the ponies." Uh-huh. You know, a lot of times they're, you know, they're not making that difference. Right, right. And these horses are bred to compete. They're bred to, um, you know, to be show horses, and most of them are show horses all of their lives. Mm. Now, we only have a few minutes left, so mm-hmm. I want to provide some details out there. I mentioned that the ribbon cutting is this afternoon, coming up in about an hour, two hours or so, right, at the farm show. Uh, just give some of the particulars uh, well we're excited this is going to be our inaugural ribbon cutting we're gonna we're actually um, excited that Secretary of Agriculture um, Russell Redding is going to be with us and some dignitaries from Morgan Stanley um, from you know from the farm show complex so we're excited to have a very high-end group of people that are going to be joining us for the ribbon cutting today mm-hmm. okay and then it goes on for 10 days right exactly and don't forget to come out too because this year we're actually partnering with the vineyards at Hershey so we're gonna have some great wine tasting tastings on Friday and Saturday nights. Wine tasting and horseback riding. Exactly. Did the two go together? Shopping, eating, it all goes together. <laughs> it sounds like a great time. It sounds like a great time. Right. And to top it all off, the, really after all the competition, what we've done this year, we've actually added a concert to our schedule. On Saturday, October 22nd, Ben Gallagher, our local our local um, native here from Pennsylvania, who is a Sony Nashville artist now, is going to actually finalize and uh, wrap up the horse show for us. Now, is that part of someone buys a ticket? Uh, is the concert part of that? Yes. You get two shows for one ticket. So make sure you get your tickets online. You can go on our website, www.panational.org. You know, I and I don't have about 30 seconds left, and I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, 
I also always think about Pennsylvania. You know, I know that we often talk about like thoroughbred horse racing and how big of an industry. How big of an industry is this in Pennsylvania show horsing? Um, actually, horse shows are, are a big thing across the board. You know, there is the racetracks here in, in town and are in the state. Um, and you know, the equestrian population is is up, you know, thriving. Well, uh, Susie Webb, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Susie is the executive director of the Pennsylvania National Horse Show and their foundation. Ribbon cutting at uh, noon today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we continue our conversation with candidates, uh, the Democrat and the Republican running for Pennsylvania Attorney General, coming up on uh, tomorrow's program.